What's up? And welcome to Espresso with Erin and Sarit, the show where you go to gain the confidence and self-empowerment that you need to live your best and most authentic life. Tough love conversations to reveal the simple truths that will transform your relationships, your body, and your bank account. We are your hosts. I'm Erin. And I'm Sarit. And we are on a mission to transform the lives of millions through the same fitness, nutrition, lifestyle, and financial habits that have transformed ours. Good morning, you guys, and welcome to our show. Today, you guys, we have CEO of Streamline Medical Group and Director of the NFL Alumni Association. Gary Brecka is a certified human biologist. With more than 20 years of biohacking and functional medicine experience, he's obsessed with the function and performance of the human body and finding innovative ways to help people achieve absolute peak function in their bodies. Gary's on a mission to uncover the safest and fastest way to optimize your mind, body, and spirit through modern science. He speaks fast, he's full of energy, his attitude is <laughs> and today he'll be teaching you how to biohack our expected mortality, and how to increase peak performance. Gary, welcome to the show. Ooh, let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> I love well, it. I love it. So, I mean, was... Gary, like, let's, what is biohacking anyways? So biohacking to me means, um, you know, what are the things that we can do practically just with the environment around us without putting anything into our body or taking anything out of our body to elevate performance. And by performance, I mean performance of all kinds, right? I mean, I want to have balanced digestion. I want to have a waking energy. And I want my emotional state to exist in what, what I would call the, um, the upper tier of emotional states. See, remember that mood and emotion, every mood or emotion that a human being can feel is nothing more than a collection of neurotransmitters, right? It has a recipe like a chocolate chip cookie. So if we have all the components of that chocolate chip cookie, then it comes out perfectly. If we're missing a component, then the recipe doesn't come out correctly. That's the same thing with, um, you know, that's very analogous to mood, to emotional state, and to our cognitive function. And mainly that has to do with how much oxygen we have in our tissues. It's called oxygen tension. And so biohacking is about increasing the circulatory percentage of oxygen in the body. It's about optimal performance. It's about positive stress because, you know, we have a um, tendency to look at stress as a, as a negative in this world. And actually there are very few physiologic mechanisms in the human body that don't improve with stress. Um, so good biohackers will on the daily, on a daily basis, apply a thermal stress, a physical stress, and an oxidative stress to their body to improve their performance. Right. I mean, if you think about it, if we don't load our bones, they don't strengthen. If we don't actually tear a muscle, it doesn't grow. And if we don't challenge our immune system, it will weaken. That's one of the things about this pandemic. I know this, is, this discussion is not about the pandemic, but nobody's talking about what's happening to the global immune profile right now. What is happening because of social distancing, masking, residential quarantines? What's happening to our immune system? Please make no mistake. It is weakening, right? The immune system was born to fight. And if you stop challenging it, it will go to sleep, just like casting your left leg and watching it shrivel and atrophy, right? The human body is efficient. And the less we use resources, the more lax those resources become. And so biohacking is about learning how to apply positive stressors to our body that are going to enhance performance, function, 
you know, physical cognition, deep sleep, waking energy, and uh, response to exercise. So I'm curious, like, no one just wake up one morning and says, I'm going to be a biohacker. Like, how did you <laughs> even get into it? Well, this is kind of a uh, crazy story. But um, for the better part of 20 years, um, I was, uh, my, you know, my background is in human biology. So my undergraduate degrees are in human biology, my postgraduates, um, master's degrees uh, are all in human biology. Um, when I left grad school, I, I went to work for the insurance industry. And I became a certified expert witness in federal court for uh, litigation related to mortality. What is mortality? It's the science of predicting death. And believe it or not, there is hundreds all over the world are backed by mortality, life insurance, annuities, reverse mortgages. All of these things require the insurance company or the annuity company to not only know how long you're going to live, but how many months you have left on, on earth. And so I developed a, a mortality model for predicting death. It was the first one in modern mortality science. It's called a probabilistic model. And if I got five years of medical records on you and five years of demographic data, I could tell the insurance company how long you had to live to the month. And it didn't matter if you were 25 and healthy, 30 years old and never been to the doctor, or if you were 81 and terminally ill. Because the model that I built used the absence of optimal health to predict the presence of death. And it was the first time that we ever used health markers to actually predict death. And what we found, because I had access to a uh, 370 million a population database of 370 million lives, you know, if this database could see the light of day, it would absolutely change the face of humanity. You know, insurance companies are, are kind of the polar opposite of Google and Facebook. You know, they collect voluminous amounts of information, but they don't share it with anyone. They use it only to price their own financial services products. What I started to realize was, you know, here I am predicting death to the month with this incredible accuracy. I became a certified witness in that federal court. Eventually, I got certified in the Southern District of New York. If there's any lawyers on the phone, they'll know how difficult that is. And I felt like my career was spent behind the thick glass wall watching blind people walk into traffic because I could have no contact with the patient. I could have no contact with the treating physician. So even if I saw life-threatening drug interactions... I couldn't contact the doctor. I couldn't contact the, the patient. And I saw over and over and over again, misdiagnoses that were leading to accelerated death in the patients that we were you know, uh, predicting mortality on. I mean, you know that this is a statistic that doesn't really get out to the world, but the third leading cause of death in America is medical error, right? You have cancer, I'm sorry, you have cardiovascular disease, you have cancer, and number three is medical error. Now it's just not, it's not, so mind-blowing that medical error is the third leading cause of death, but it's the third leading cause of death in the industry designed to prevent, prevent death. I mean, if, if you sold home security systems, but you were the third leading cause of break-ins, how long do you think you'd be in business, right? Or if you were, you know, if you guys uh, ran a training program that was the third leading cause of obesity, how many people would hire you to train them? I mean, it's mind-numbing that the third leading cause of death is the industry designed to prevent death. And this just shows you that modern medicine has a fun vitamin D3, right? This is the most important single compound in the human body. There's not a second, there's not a distant second by any means. There's nobody else in the race. Vitamin D3, colocalciferol is the single most important nutrient in the human body. It's so important to human function that it's the only vitamin that a human being can make on our own. There's hundreds of vitamins in your bloodstream right this moment, but you have to either eat, supplement, or drink in order to manufacture those vitamins. Vitamin D3, you don't have to eat, you don't have to drink, 
You don't have to supplement. You don't have to do anything. You just need to get sunlight and have some cholesterol in your bloodstream and your body produces vitamin D3. There's not a single receptor. I mean, a single cell in the entire human body that doesn't have a receptor site for this nutrient. So just imagine how important it is to human function if it's the only vitamin we make and every cell has a receptor for it. Yet 50% of the entire population is clinically deficient in this nutrient. And when vitamin D3 gets low, not only weakens our immune system, right? I mean, interestingly, there has not been a single one COVID death at any age, not even 90 years old in a nursing home that has been reported on someone with a vitamin D3 level above 34 nanograms per deciliter. Not one. 60% of all hospital admissions for COVID have a clinical deficiency in vitamin D3, 60%. And 100% of the deaths have occurred in people with clinically deficient vitamin D3. Yet nobody's talking about what this simple compound could do to bolster our immunity. And, but when this deficiency goes on for decades, like it does in, in the majority of the population, it eventually manifests itself as rheumatoid arthritis. It does, it's not actually rheumatoid arthritis, but its symptoms are parallel, right? So take a, a 55-year-old woman, right? She, she, she goes to her primary care physician, says, listen, I've got, I got stiffness and achiness going down into my neck. It, it spreads out into my shoulders, my knees and hips and shoulders ache all the time. Lately, it's really hard to make a fist. He goes, you know what? You've got rheumatoid arthritis. I'm going to hit you with some high-dose prednisone. I'm going to start you on a corticosteroid. I saw this thousands of times in mortality modeling. So I knew as a mortality expert that the day that that woman started more, um, taking corticosteroids, she had six years and one day until she was going to have a joint replacement. So I would artificially advance her age six years and one day. I would schedule the joint replacement. And then I would begin to reduce her ambulatory profile, right? Am ambulation is, uh, you know, walking, moving around. So I would start to reduce her ambulatory profile and bring in all the disease exacerbation that starts with reduced mobility, which by the way, in the new mortality statistics that came out this year, sitting is the new smoking. Sitting is the new smoking. Mm. Yeah. Sedentary lifestyle will eclipse cancer, cardiovascular disease, and smoking and drug and alcohol addiction as the leading cause of death. Does this person move? How much does this their body? Do they breathe? Are they hypoxic? Do you see hypoxia, which is low levels of oxygen in the blood, is the reason why all human beings leave this earth. We all die of the same thing. Lack of oxygen to the brain. That's the definition of death. But we tend to think of it as an event, right? We tend to think of it as a bus or a bullet or a heart attack. And really, hypoxia is happening to us slowly over time. This is why aging is the aggressive pursuit of comfort. Aging is the aggressive pursuit of comfort. And the more we seek comfort, the faster we age, right? I mean, we talked about, <laughs> I mean, you want to add seven years to your life, start doing weight-bearing exercise, breathe in the morning and skip breakfast. So, you know, when we, when I was in the mortality space, I would see these travesties, right? And I, I even saw, you know, worse things. I mean, which I'll talk about in a minute, but so cardiovascular disease, and thyroid disease, uh, hypertension, uh, hypercholesterolemia, hypertriglyceridemia, all of these diseases that we believe are genetically inherited. Get ready for this. They don't even exist. They do not exist. In fact, I spoke on November 11th um, at the Age Management Medicine Group Conference, a big group full of board-certified endocrinologists. And I said, by show of hands, how many of you are treating patients for genetically inherited thyroid disease? How about genetically inherited cardiovascular disease? hypertriglyceridemia, hypercholesterolemia. How many of you are treating patients for genetically inherited hypertension? Every hand in the room was up. Now the question is, where's the gene SNP for those diseases? Because if it's a genetically inherited disease, it has to have a location on the genome. 
So for example, if you said I'm treating a woman for her genetic predisposition to breast cancer, I would believe you because it has a location on the genome. There's no location for, there's no location for thyroid disease. There's no location for cardiovascular disease. There is no gene for hypertension. There's no gene for high cholesterol or hypertriglyceridemia. So what is it? There are five actionable genes in the human body, five. They supply all of the raw material that human beings need to perform optimally. When these genes are broken, we lack raw material. We did not inherit disease. We inherited a lack of raw material. And once we replace that raw material, the disease eviscerates. I have goosebumps. I know, me too. I love this stuff. I'm going to go jump in the ocean. I'm out. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I get... Why? Why? So like excited about... I'm the first person that's going to know more good news today. Seriously. I mean, if my dog is lost or somebody backed into my car, let me know because I need something to take the edge off. Like, <laughs> I get so excited. I feel like I'm just going <laughs> to... But so... Once we understand that the majority of disease and pathology is just a lack of raw material. See, in, in, in predicting death, I would see blood that was hypoxic. I could have fixed it with iron bisglycinate, B12, and methylfolate. I would see clinical deficiencies in, in D3 leading to misdiagnoses of rheumatoid. I could have fixed that with vitamin D3, cholecalciferol. 70% of my hormone therapy patients that require hormone therapy are not on hormones. I give them raw materials and the human body wakes back up and starts to produce hormones. Uh, you know, we, we have a tendency to think that the human body just wakes up one day and, you know, shits the bed. Oh, whoops. I shouldn't say shit the bed. Just goes off a cliff. <laughs> Can you say shit the bed on your show? It's fair here. Um, it's fair here. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that's not what happens. It's that we deprive the body of raw material and then we blame it for not being able to do its job. It's just like if I asked you to make me a chocolate chip cookie, right? But I didn't give you brown sugar and I didn't give you chocolate chips. There's nothing wrong with you. You just don't have the raw material to complete the task. The human body is the same way. We ask it to perform, move contents through our gut, um, reduce anxiety, reduce depression, balance mood, balance emotion, respond to exercise. We ask it to increase our cardiovascular rate and respiratory rate and all of these things and then we hold back some of the raw material and then we blame the human body. We call that pathology and disease. It's like saying, uh, you know, what's the matter with you? Why can't you make me the chocolate chip cookie? You know, are you dyslexic? Are you retarded? Can you not read? Do you not understand my instructions? It's, it's none of those things. It's a lack of raw material. I'll give you a perfect example. 44% of Americans are currently on an antidepressant. So the 370 million people in this country, 44% of us are taking an antidepressant. Now, what is the definition of depression? The definition of depression is an inadequate supply of serotonin. That's how we define depression. You go to the physician's death reference, the, the, you know, the Bible uh, for modern medicine. We define depression as an inadequate supply of serotonin, but we never treat the supply. What do we do for people that are depressed? We put them on something called an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So this takes somebody with limited serotonin and it rations it. It just spreads it around so it doesn't get used up too quickly. Well, that by definition never raises serotonin. So that by definition never ends depression. And, you know, I sit across from them. I say, they're like, Gary, you know, I'm, I've been depressed, you know, on and off throughout my lifetime. I said, well, I know because I see it in your genes. But how long have you been taking an antidepressant? 16 years. Okay. Well, when did you think it was going to kick in? And it just blows their mind. They're like, you know what? I never thought about it that way. I'm like, well, if I was taking an antidepressant and I was on my 16th year, I'd kind of be like, when is this thing going to kick in? It's never going to kick in. 
So now let's look at the raw material in the body. Serotonin is made in the human body. We make serotonin. And the human body is perfectly equipped to make serotonin if it has the raw material. If you hold back some of the raw material, you can't make serotonin. If you can't make serotonin, you're depressed. So why don't we just turn the serotonin factory back on? How do we do that? We look at these five genes, five actionable genes in the human body. We look at the gene that codes for the manufacturer of neurotransmitters. And we make sure that that gene has the raw material to do its job. Five methylfolate, methylcobalamin, methyl B12. Um, we have to make sure that um, we have adequate amounts of zinc, magnesium, omophionine. These are basic, basic raw materials. When we put these back into the human body, especially in someone that has depression, then they begin to methylate serotonin. Serotonin rises, mood elevates, and depression's gone because it was never there, right? The idea that a cluster of symptoms outside the body can affect physiology over your entire lifetime is absurd, right? It's just uh, nonsensical to me. And I, you know, I don't want to pick on psychiatry. I think psychiatrists are great, but it is the only area of modern medicine that never examines the organ that it treats, right? I mean, these people are licensed to put some of the most neuroplasticity-altering chemicals in the brain and to diagnose some of the most um, neuropathically debilitating diseases of the brain. And they do it by talking to a patient. And based on the patient's stories and the patient's interpretation of their surroundings and their image of their mother or their father or their, or their sense of how they grew up or their self-esteem or their self-image, they diagnose these neuropathic debilitating diseases and then put chemicals into the brain to fix it. I mean, someone needs to spend some time convincing me of how my 30-year relationship with my mother is broken and you're going to fix it by putting chemicals into my brain. I, don't, I never was able to get my arms around that. Addiction is no different, right? Addiction is the absence of dopamine, right? The absence of dopamine is the presence of addiction. The absence of dopamine is the presence of addiction. So this means that the presence of dopamine is the absence of addiction. And what are the raw materials for dopamine? This means that in order to treat addiction, it's dopamine. Yeah, we put the raw materials into the body to methylate dopamine. And now the person doesn't, isn't being dragged towards their addiction because 99% of addicts, sexual um, addicts, you know, if you have a sex addiction, if you have a drug addiction, if you have an alcohol addiction, if you have a gaming addiction, a gambling addiction, 99% of addicts are not seeking a high. They're seeking normalcy. And in the pursuit of normalcy to elevate dopamine to normopathic levels, yes, and sugar addiction too. I'll talk about that in one second. Um, I was actually just at a biohacking conference right before COVID, Dave Asprey's biohacking conference in, um, in uh, Beverly Hills. And, and we had board certified neurosurgeons trying to tell the difference between images of the brain where someone had done a line of cocaine smoked a cigarette, played a video game for an hour or eaten a tablespoon of uh, raw table sugar. And they could not, a board certified neurosurgeon could not tell the difference between the brain images in the same individual. So this means that, uh, this means that sugar um, excites the same uh, neuropathic centers of the brain that addiction does. It excites the same dopagenic receptors as addiction. And sugar addiction can be just as difficult to battle as nicotine. And I'll tell you something, if I do one thing before I leave this earth, I'm, I am going to change the Bible from the love of money is the root of all evil to sugar is the root of all evil. <laughs> I'm telling you, 
Sugar is the root of all evil. And there is scantily a disease ideological pathway in the human body that doesn't have its roots in low blood oxygen and the presence of sugar. Um, a high glycemic profile will eventually lead to Alzheimer's and dementia. In fact, we are the only civilized nation in the world that still continues to call Alzheimer's and dementia, Alzheimer's and dementia. Most countries call it what it is. It's type three diabetes. If you Google type three diabetes, right? You're gonna find, just Google it right now, type three diabetes. You're gonna see Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Kellogg University, Berkeley, major research institutions all over the world have already proven that early onset Alzheimer's and dementia is insulin resistance in the brain. You see what we don't realize is the brain is a uh, high glycemic profile leads to, oh yeah, I love you, yep. Um, insulin resistance in the brain is type three diabetes. But the brain is such a voracious consumer of carbohydrate, right? The brain consumes 45% of all the carbohydrate we take into the body, right? And so what happens when we get insulin resistant in the body? Well, we convert sugar to something called glycogen. We store it in the lip. What happens when we get insulin in the brain? By the way, the brain can also make insulin. Most board certified endocrinologists think that the pancreas is the only place in the human body where insulin is made. No, the brain is such a voracious consumer of carbohydrate that it makes its own insulin. And I'm telling you something, the brain is nasty. The brain is primal. It is like the Kim Jong-un of dictators. <laughs> it takes everything for itself. You know, you ever see the honey badger? Honey badger doesn't give a shit. Brain doesn't give a shit. I mean, when the, what the brain wants, the brain gets. If it wants calcium, it will leach it from the bones. If it wants amino acids, it'll strip it from lean muscle, right? And if it wants sugar, it will activate RFA2 receptors in the back of the tongue. These things are nasty. They require you to swallow sweets in order to get that little ding of dopamine, right? It drugs you into giving it what it wants. Literally drugs you into giving it what you want. You get a pleasure signal every time that, that sugar passes over that receptor. So now what happens when we get insulin resistant in the brain? Remember in the brain, nerves don't touch, right? If I tickle the end of your toe, there's a hard wire from the tip of your toe right up your leg, into your spine, straight up into your brain. Once it reaches the brain, nerve signals travel, but they reach these areas where there's a gap, right? It's, it's called the neurosynaptic junction. And as signals travel along a nerve, they reach this gap, they have to jump, right? They have to jump across this gap. Well, as I get um, insulin resistant, what do I do with excess insulin? I convert it to something called an amyloid plaque, and I stick it in the only space in the brain. I stick it in the neurosynaptic junction. So the neurosynaptic junction starts to fill up with amyloid plaques, right? So right here, I can't find my keys. can't find my wallet. Right about here, I'm parking in the neighbor's driveway. Now I find my keys in my wallet, but they're in the freezer. And then I start to lose short-term memory, then long-term memory. And let me tell you something. The big misnomer about Alzheimer's and dementia, the big lie, is that people lose their memory. That is not true. People lose access to their memory. They lose access to their memory. There's a difference between your memory fading and your access to the memory being impeded. So if access to the memory is impeded by Alzheimer's and dementia because of type 3 diabetes, then what about taking the glycemic profile to zero and metabolizing amyloid plaques right out of the neurosynaptic junction? That's biohacking. That's what we do. You can't hear me? So, yes. yes. I, I want to give you a big hug and a big kiss and tell you <laughs> But, Come but down to Cozumel. <laughs> you, you already know that you're such a freaking disruptor and I love it. Like doctors must hate the shit out of you because you're <laughs> yes. literally 
like yeah. transforming what modern medicine is doing and just like literally like putting rocket fuel to help heal people from within and like man you guys isn't he amazing give us a 10x if you think that he's amazing hell yeah, yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> speaking of 10x yeah i mean look at my boy grant you know i started treating him three years ago um he's very public about it so normally i don't talk about patients especially celebrity patients but um but Grant's been very public about it. Look at Grant's, you know, he, he looked 15 years older three years ago. All I've done is biohack Grant. His blood work is perfect. His genetic profile is perfect. We do anti-aging treatments as well, you know, stem cell, facials and things. But he's never had any work done. He's all naturopathic. I put very few things into his bloodstream that are not in his bloodstream already. And he's gone from being a 62-year-old biological male um, or chronological male to being about a 41-year-old uh, biological male. Insane. I've, and I've seen it. Let's go. Yeah. Oh, you can see that transformation. Yeah. I've been aware of him for at least three years. Yeah. So, like I can see, I'm like, dude, what is a dude doing? And then we met you at GrowthCon and just our minds were blown. And, you know, I think that I maybe was able to write down like an eighth or a 16th of any information I tried to. Um, <laughs> but it's good that this is recorded because I can always go back and listen, but yeah, this is like his, like, I don't know. What's, what's the word where it changes everything. Game changer. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it, here's, here's the interesting thing is that, um, you know, uh, people say this all the time to me, but the truth is, uh, you know, I'm a human biologist, so I don't have the luxury of pharmacology at my fingertips. I'm not licensed to practice medicine, right? So I have to figure things out within the body in a way that, that can't involve modern medicine because I'm not licensed to engage in that practice. And it's not that I don't believe in it. Um, I believe in it on an interventional basis. I just don't believe in it on a sustainable basis, right? I mean, there was a recently CEO of a major pharmaceutical company that retired that I, that I believe was stripped of his pension and his, his 401k, and I think he even got sued. But, um, you know, he, he put it best. He said, look, pharmaceutical companies are never gonna fund cure-based research. Right. I mean, because if you owned an airline, would you fund research on how to sell fewer seats? I mean, if you owned a car dealership, would you invest in research on how to sell fewer cars? No. So you're never going to fund research to put yourself out of business. What you will fund is research on how to manage disease. Right. The management of disease in this country is a multi hundred billion dollar industry. Diabetes alone is a hundred and ten billion dollar scale of, of insulin? Probably not. In fact, if you said to me, and no one would ever say this to me, but if you said to me, Gary, um, write me a diet that would guarantee I would get diabetes. I would go right to the American Diabetic Association website. I would download their dietary guidelines and I'd email them to you. I mean, if you know anything about type two diabetes, insulin dependent diabetes, right? Which you probably got there because of poor glycemic control. What do they recommend for breakfast in the morning? Bowl of oatmeal with brown sugar and natural honey tall glass of orange juice. What about a snack? Yogurt with fruit on the bottom, right? And then in the afternoon, crushed granola with brown sugar. No fats, no proteins, all high glycemic carbohydrates, because what's going to happen? Your glucose is going to skyrocket. As glucose skyrockets, what do you need? You need insulin to bring it down. So this is an insulin dependency diet, right? It's not an insulin independent diet. You know, we walk dozen patients a month permanently off of insulin dependency. It takes 10 weeks to titrate 30 units of insulin down to zero. 
with a prescription ketogenic diet, C60 fish oils, berberines, um, which work better. Berberine is a uh, kind of a root that works better than uh, at lowering blood sugar than, um, than metformin. We use micromium, methionine, inositol, choline, uh, trilipoic complexes for the liver, amino acids, and, and chromium to balance blood sugar, feed people high doses of, of C60 fish oils and, and, uh, and ketogenic diets, and boom, triglycerides plummet, amyloid plaques eviscerate, and they are no longer dependent you know, on insulin. You know, they have real, uh, real-time glucose monitors now that you can put on that have a tiny little needle that just barely breaks the skin. It's a little patch. And you can open an app on your phone and see your blood sugar in real time. So two hours postprandial, three times a day, you have blood sugar below 160, 10 weeks, you can be off insulin. That's yeah. awesome. Gary, I'm sure that, you know, like a few of the people um, listening, because for one, this is amazing. And I'm sure all of you guys are like, okay, where can I get more info on this? Like, how can you biohack me, right? Give us a thumbs like, up. Like, what do I do <laughs> with all this information? Yeah, which we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah. You know, from what you know, like what habits or keystone habits would you say are habits that will help you to produce more of these raw materials that you're talking about that will help to reduce hypoxia and the development of all these, um, you know, medical conditions? Yeah. So, you know, when I was doing my research, um, you know, with the insurance companies and when I was, had access to this population database, you know, when we were building this health model, Right. You know, one of the things that uh, we looked at was what are the components that are present in disease? So, first of all, I can emphatically tell you that the presence of oxygen is the absence of disease. Presence of oxygen is the absence of disease. They say that cancer can't live in an alkaline environment. That's partially true. Can't live in a highly oxygenated environment. One of the things that cancer does is it turns the body's own system of developing new blood vessels, which is called angiogenesis, against itself. Right? It creates a, a low oxygen, toxic, highly acidic environment, which forces new blood vessels to sprout, which then brings oxygen and fuel to a tumor. Right? So it actually turns the body's angiogenic mechanism on its head. Right? And it's, it sort of uses what's called anaerobic respiration to attack the body. Right? Remember the difference, remember high school biology, you have aerobic respiration and you have anaerobic respiration. These are the two ways that the body forms energy, right? One is 16 times more efficient. Think about this. Inside of every single cell in the human body, trillions of cells, you've got these little organelles called the mitochondria. And inside the mitochondria, you've got these little motors, thousands of them that are spinning and spinning and spinning, right? It's called the Krebs cycle. Each time this motor turns once, one turn, it has two choices. It can either create two units of energy or it can create 32 units of energy. It's either efficient or 16 times more efficient. It'd be like going to a car lot and they say, we have two models. One's 100 horsepower, it's weak as a cheesy scooter. And the other one's 1600 horsepower, right? It's more powerful than, than, than a supercar. And there's no in-between. So this is the difference between aerobic respiration and anaerobic respiration. This is the difference between the presence of oxygen and the absence of oxygen. One creates CO2 as a byproduct, one creates lactic acid as a byproduct. So what if we could cause ourselves to take a 16-fold step up in energy? What if every time that motor turned, instead of creating two units of energy, it created 32 units of energy? So in order to do that, we need to get oxygen into the body. And the best way to do this is to breathe. And so when, I, when we talk about habits of, of people that are either good biohackers or they want, um, they want optimal human performance, I, I tell them, you know, follow Wim Hof. 
Um, download a, an app called Breathworks, W-E-R-K-S. It's free. It's completely free. If you don't do anything else after this podcast, just give yourself eight minutes in the start of your day to breathe. Because Wim Hof was able to prove that you can change the oxygen tension in your tissues just with breath work. So every single day of my life, I spend the, within the first hour that I'm awake, I spend eight minutes of that hour deep breathing. I do three rounds of third of my mouth, hold, exhale, and restart. And this has been clinically proven to raise the oxidative state of the mind. So now what happens when we raise oxygen? Well, we know what happens at a cellular level. We increase mitochondrial function. What's happening in a mental level? Well, what is mood? What is emotion? Remember, I said earlier, all an emotional state is, or mood, is a collection of neurotransmitters. That's it. And every mood has a recipe. If you said happiness, okay, that's so much serotonin, so much dopamine, so much norepinephrine, so much epinephrine, boom, you have happiness, right? But guess what else is an integral component of every elevated emotional state? Oxygen. This is why no one on this phone call has ever woken up laughing. You can wake up angry. You can be in a deep delta wave of sleep and I can pinch you and you can instantly wake up angry. Why? Because anger takes zero oxygen. Low emotional states are hypoxic states. The lower the oxygen in your blood, the worse your mood. If you actually look at the recipe of elation, passion, joy, arousal, libido, all of the hell yeah, I won the lottery emotions, every single one of them, the majority of that emotional state is oxygen, right? O2 is bound to that methyl group in every one of those neurotransmitter cascades. So now take oxygen out, mood collapses. Again, that's why you're dead asleep. If I wanna wake you up and, and have you laugh, what do I have to do? I have to wake you up, you gotta breathe, you gotta raise the oxygen in your blood. Now I can tell you a joke or tickle you and you can laugh. If I tickle you when you're asleep, you'll wake up full manufacturing in the low oxygen state. So the first thing that I want to do is breathe because breathing not does it power up the body, improving fuel to the mitochondria, it powers up the mind by literally dragging our emotional state into an elevated emotional tier. And so we complete these um, breathing techniques. Uh, and then I... No. Gary done and left us. That's okay. He'll be back. Uh, yeah, maybe he'll be back. Maybe his uh, phone died. He's in Mexico right now. So nobody knows. Sorry, guys. It, uh, all right, I'm back. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I'm in Mexico. Um, <laughs> Wait, we can't see you. All right. Oh, I yes. All right, can you hear me yet? Give it a second. It'll oh, reconnect. You dance to the other side of the screen. Okay, cool. We're on. And he can dance, you guys. <laughs> you guys All right, can you hear me? Um, let me see. Right. You can hear me? Yeah. Here, you know what? Let me, um, I turned my video off to save a little bandwidth. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, okay, so you can hear me? Yep. Yeah. We already know you look handsome. He's muted too. <laughs> uh, you guys, this is making me think of like, you know, when you, when you get upset or when you get frustrated or when you feel stressed or you have anxiety, like an initial human response is to be like, <sighs> and I'm asking myself why, like instinctually, like as a, as a species, like we just, like the body knows, like you need something up in here. Yes, that's so true. Um, so can you hear me now? Yeah. Popping in, just popping in. Okay. How are we doing now, guys? Um, can you hear me? Sounds yeah, good. it's better. Okay, great. Okay, perfect. So sorry about that. You know, welcome to Cosimo, Mexico. 
But uh, so what I was saying was, you know, we raise the oxidative of the body by breathing, right? And then if we apply a physical stress to the body, my preference is weight-bearing exercise, right? You know, I think cardiovascular training is fine, but if you only have time to do one form of exercise, I would prefer weight-bearing exercise because... Because bone density, because muscle, muscle mass, <laughs> filling in the blanks. Increased oxygen. Actually, I mean, if you're running, yeah, more muscle means increased yeah. oxygen. Hence, why the burn zone is high intensity functional training. You guys. He's just helping us create, increase our oxygen by laughing at the situation. It's all part of the script. There you go. I agree. I love. Oh, he's back. Your phone. I'm gonna walk over. Do that. It's not the best. Okay, so I can hear you guys. Maybe I should turn off my, yeah, there I go. I'll turn off my video to save some bandwidth. How's that? I think your Much phone better. is laughing okay. uh, I think your phone has an okay. it. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think we're here now. Okay, I can hear you guys just fine. Uh, awesome. So where did I leave off? Uh, so, you know, then I, if I a thermal cool morning and uh, water. Remember, um, water is 29, air, 29 times more thermogenic than air. And so from the body at 29 times the rate that air, that the same temperature air does. And so what happens when heat leaves the body? Well, well first of all, what, what is a calorie? Right? Calorie is a measure of heat, right? It uh, raise one cubic uh, centimeter of water, one degree centigrade, right? So it's a measure of heat. So if heat is leaving the body, and guess what else is leaving the body? Calories. So there is no better way to eviscerate fat on a human being than by getting into cold water. There's an entire book written on this. Um, Tim Ferriss wrote The 4-Hour Body, 30, 30, 30. But if you, it's, it's uncomfortable. But if you'll make yourself uncomfortable, you can literally strip fat off your body at an alarming rate by putting yourself through a thermal stress. Now, the other thing is, and these are really interesting. You should take a minute to Google these. <clears throat> the, the liver has a reserve um, of two types of very special proteins. One is called a heat shock protein, and the other is called a cold shock protein. And these are reserve proteins that are in the liver that are meant for extreme situations. If you've ever actually heard of somebody falling through the ice, like slipping through the ice, and, and they get stuck under the ice for 45 minutes or an hour, and EMS finally gets them out and they revive them and they're actually fine. How does that happen? Or feats of superhuman strength? How did these things happen? Because heat shock proteins, when you're exposed to high temperatures for more than 15 minutes, or cold shock proteins, when you're exposed to uh, cold water for more than 10 minutes, the liver releases these into the bloodstream. And what they do is they scour the body of free radical oxidation and they quadruple the rate of protein synthesis. So what happens if you increase protein synthesis, you increase muscle repair. So you can do 36 hours of muscle repair in, in just more than 10 minutes in cold water or 20 minutes in a hot sauna above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. I prefer above 180 degrees Fahrenheit. So now if you woke in the, up in the morning, breathe for eight minutes, apply to physical stress, which would be weight-bearing exercise, and then expose yourself to a thermal stress, you are absolutely bulletproof. Why? Because you've now scoured your body of free radical oxidation, elevated your emotional state, empowered your mitochondria to improve their function 16 times. And guess what? It didn't cost you a penny. <laughs> Except to log on and exercise too. <laughs> right? So 
why would we not um I don't us the capacity to be superhuman just by engaged stress. Those are habits that I would incorporate. I hope you got all that. Nope. You was it a basically like a recap of the three habits? Yes, just a recap of the three habits. Breathe, weight bearing activity, cold ass shower, thermal. Yes, amen. Yes. I'll try to put it into a thermal stress. Hey, I'm going to wake up and thermally stress myself out. I'm <laughs> Nobody says that. I'm yeah, take- that's, a, that's exactly it. Okay, yeah, Gary. That's exactly it. So, so tell us, how can you help us to improve our performance and increase our lifespan? Because I'm sure that all of you guys are like at this point, just completely mind blown, right? Yeah, when we met this guy, you guys, aside from the fact that, I mean, you know, like you just look amazing. It's obvious that you practice what you preach, but, you know, like also like what you know and what you apply is just like mind blowing, so extremely disruptive and it all just makes sense. And it's almost like the world's greatest secret, which I'm sure is not going to be a secret for much longer. So you know, what do you guys do at Streamline and... Wait, before he answers this, I've actually been taking cold showers all of this week, but I'm wondering how mm. cold does the cold need to be? Well, I mean, it's, look, it's, it's better to apply the thermal stress than to not. Ideally, you'd want to submerge the entire body into cold water, right? But if, you have a, if all you have access to is a cold shower, then by all means, take a cold shower, just zero heat. And, and what I do is um, I start the water running as cold as it'll run. I step in the shower without getting into the water stream. And then I take a really deep breath. And then I breathe out slowly as I step into the water stream. This will prevent you from shivering, right? So you breathe in, hold, step into the stream of water, breathe out as that water hits you. By the time you've released that breath, you're already used to the water. And then you're going to start to crave this. Because what, it, what it's been proven is that when we apply a thermal stress, a physical stress, and we raise our oxidative state, now mood, energy, and emotion have all been elevated and so has a muscle and tissue repair, right? We've gotten free radicals out of the way. We've increased the rate of protein synthesis. And now when you start your day, if you bang your knuckles on the car door on your way to work, you're going to slough that off. It's not even going to shift your mood. If you bang your knuckles on the way to, and you're in a low oxidative state, you're going to be like, oh, this is just an indication of how my day is going to go and everything sucks for me and this freaking hurts. And this is why I hate driving to work at this time of day. And I'm just going to go see a bunch of pieces of how you perceive things changes. Um, and I can't emphasize this enough because, you know, there was a uh, study done by MIT. And, and for those of you that would like to see this study, you know, anything that I espouse on, on this show, um, you know, if you go to my Instagram at Gary Brecka, just at G-A-R-Y-B-R-E-C-K-A, I'll put the links to this research. But if you want to hear something fascinating, you know, uh, MIT did a research project on human emotion, memory, and conscience. And what they were able to prove was that there's a center in our brain. Um, the interesting thing about this part of the brain is that it is the sole doorway to memory. We do not have any indirect access to our own memories. The only way that a human being accesses memory is through the amygdala, 
which means that the only memories you access are memories tied to your current emotional state. By the way, there are no exceptions to that rule. That is a biophysiologic fact. So if you are angry at the moment that you are experiencing anger, you can only recall memories tied to that emotional state. So if you're angry, you can only recall angry memories. If you want to prove this, just remember the last time you had a knockdown, drag out argument with your spouse. What did you do? You recalled every other time they made you feel that way with, with incredible precision. You know, you did this at our mother-in-law's house. You know, you did this in front of our friends the other night at dinner on Thursday. You did this when we traveled to Hawaii on September 24th of 2019. You know, you remember every time that that negative emotional state occurred and you recall it with incredible accuracy. At that moment, if your environment changes, you're not capable of perceiving your environment in a positive manner. You can only perceive negative things about that environment. If you had a really bad argument with your spouse on the way to work and you got out of the car, slammed the door and stormed into your office, as you break the plane of your office door, the only memories you can recall about your office are negative. So as you enter your office, you're going to say, you know what, you know, Sally's taking over my job. I don't like my boss. And, you know, I got the smallest desk in the company and nobody recognizes all, all the negative things going on in that office. Now, if we also know, and this is heavily researched and there's no second opinions on this either, our memory determines our consciousness, right? If you drove to work today, you didn't think about where the steering wheel was or the gas pedal or the brake or the turn signal. Your memory drove you to work. How did it drive you to work? It projected into your conscience what you needed to know in order to drive that vehicle to work. And while you were driving, you probably did a dozen other things. So if we know that emotion determines what memories we access and memories determine our conscience and our conscience is our future, that means that our emotional state determines our future. So if the first thing you do in the morning is raise your emotional state, then you are going to improve your memory's projection into your conscience and pave the way for positive outcomes in your future. So this is so much more profound than just feeling good in the morning or getting oxygen into the body or powering up the mitochondria. This is insane, but it is so profound. It's so important to, like Mel said, gratitude every morning, just to get yourself in a positive state. Yes, just to get yourself in a positive state. Um, so one of the things we do at Streamline is, is we look at the five actionable genes in the human body, <clears throat> right? I mean, you, you don't need Streamline to do what I said before, but if you want to be superhuman, then we have to have a board in front of us with all of the information that tells me the, the critical information that I need to fly at altitude. It's like if you look at a pilot's dashboard, there's nothing in front of them that is not critical to flying that airplane, right? The only things that they have in front of them are things that are absolutely relevant to maintaining altitude. So the human body is no different. You know, if we look at the five actionable genes in the human body, um, if you're missing certain raw materials, one of these genes is broken, then you are not able to achieve an optimal state, optimal health, optimal emotional state, and it is very easy to fix. Um, so we'll do a one-time genetic test. You do it once in your lifetime. It's a cheek swab. We'll look at those five actionable genes, and then I will tell you exactly what supplement to take to make certain that those gene SNPs are not holding you back, right? Because the majority of us <clears throat> have our physiology dragging us, not pushing us, right? And physiology extreme over the rock, right? The, the Chinese proverb says that if you put a boulder in the middle of a stream, you know, it may take a million years 
but that stream will wear that boulder down to a grain of sand. And, and why is that? Because the stream is relentless. The stream never stops. Our physiology is the same way. If you're trying to achieve an elevated emotional state, if you're trying to achieve optimal athletic performance, optimal cognitive function, deep delta wave of sleep, you have to make sure that your physiology is not dragging you. You want to make sure your physiology is pushing you. And the way to do that is look at those five actionable genes. And then also there's 68 biomarkers in the blood that you look at. And I love, I really just love the blood work because I kind of like it for what's not in it, you know, because what's not. Where'd you go, Gary? Where'd you jump off to? I don't need DHA. I need D3. You know, I, I, I need B12. Um, I need hormone balance. And so if you look at those two things, your genetics and your blood, and you start the morning the way that I just described, man, you're on your way to being a superhuman. I love it. Gary, can you tell us where are the Streamline clinics currently located? And, you know, if somebody is really interested in doing this cheek swab and, you know, like using your work to help them increase their lifespan and improve their performance overall, um, where do they need to go? Um, well, you can go to um, uh, Streamline Medical Group. I got something. Sorry, 70% of our patients have never uh, broken the plane of our door. So you don't need to come into a streamline for us to treat you. If you have blood work done, we send you to a lab corp. And there's a lab corp within two miles of every emergency room in the country. And the cheek swab is something I send you in the mail. You, you rub it up against your cheek, put it in the test tube, you FedEx it to the lab. And five days later, it populates our system. And we tell you exactly what to supplement with for your genes. So you don't need... On Instagram, I'd be more than happy to send you a link to become a new patient and, and tell you exactly what raw materials are missing in your body preventing optimal health. I love it. So you broke off for a little bit. I just want to confirm that we all heard this right, but you don't actually have to go to one of the streamline offices. Um, you can do so online and all they'll have to do is just DM you at Instagram at Gary Brecca and you'll get them everything that they need. Yes, absolutely. Incredible. Okay. If you want to, you want to take some questions? Do you guys have any questions for Gary? This could go on for another few hours. I'm sure. <laughs> I have a question for you, Gary. Mm -hmm. I saw that you're associated with the NFL alumni. Now there is an NFL player that I'm extremely obsessed with because of his dedication. Um, and I'm just curious because he now lives in Florida, but is Tom Brady one of your patients as well? <laughs> so if, if, um, if a patient doesn't talk about it publicly or, or specifically allow me to talk um, about my treatment of them, then I, I can't for HIPAA purposes. So I, it's it's the HIPAA it's the HIPPO rule law. True, I'm not a doctor. You're pushing me off the screen. Oh, sorry. Standard. Sorry, um, like Roy Jones Jr., French Montana, Grant Cardone, Elena Cardone. But if I don't get a specific release from a patient, then I can't really comment on whether or not they're they're a patient of mine. I can tell you, I have plenty of uh, lots of NFL athletes. You know, I mean, the the president of the NFL Alumni Association, Billy Davis, who's a two-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, as a patient of ours, you know, we've, we've done stem cell injections for his knees, um, for repetitive use injuries, um, you know, blood work and, and other testing on him to optimize him after he left the game. He was a two-time Super Bowl champion. But a lot of the guys that are currently in the, in the league, you know, are not public about 
our relationship. Yeah, I completely understand. And I just want to put it out there that I, I didn't mean to like throw you off by any means. Oh, this is not at all. I, I teach about like what he does and that's why I'm just curious. Incredible. You guys raise your hand if like, if you want to become a superhuman like that, take action folks, take action. Yeah. Gary, your time is so valuable and we know that you're currently, you know, in Cozumel, like putting up another clinic. We are so happy and grateful that you joined us this morning. Um, you know, this one hour just added so much value. And you got awesome. You're really helping to transform and change lives. And, you know, like we got your back. Anything that you that you need from us to support you, we'd be happy to. You're doing so many incredible things. You guys, do you have anything? Thank you so much. All right. Well, a that lot, thinks a lot of people are wanting to know about the sugar addiction thing. But to be honest, the time I would message him and see what what steps we can take in regards to that, because I think that it's a valuable oh, yeah. subject. Um, yeah, I mean, we could also do it on another podcast. You know, yeah, we can have you back on again. Be great. Perfect. Absolutely. You can message me and I'll give you the I'll walk you off of sugar addiction. Um, and, you know, if you guys want to do another podcast down the road, I'd be delighted to be a guest. I really appreciate you and what you guys are doing as well thank you thank you i think you're about to get thirteen thousand messages about how do i stop eating sugar so. <laughs> okay well there's no better subject for me i love it so i've got endless patience for that <laughs> yeah and i I, I would love to know what you say about it too just for myself well well i mean here i'll give it to you very quickly um so it takes about seven to nine days to rid yourself of the impetus um the demand for sugar right? Because remember that our brain is very primal. We like to think of the brain as being very, very sophisticated, right? Um, but the brain at its root is actually very primal, right? It cares about very few things. And if you give the brain what it wants, it'll leave you alone. If you don't, it will nag you until it gets what it wants until you refuse it to a certain point and then it goes away. So for example, a lot of times in the human body, we manifest things um, much differently, we signal much differently than what the body wants. So for example, if you're about to have a heat stroke, you actually get cold to the touch and you stop sweating. When your blood sugar is the lowest, when you are hypoglycemic, you don't feel like eating. When you are the most clinically dehydrated, you lose the sensation for thirst. You see, so the body does have a way of turning this signal off once it doesn't get what it wants. If it keeps asking for fluid and you refuse to give it fluid, it eventually shuts the fluid signal off. In fact, the patients who I look at their blood work that are the most clinically dehydrated don't ever have the impetus to drink, right? So well, the same thing works with sugar. To shut these receptors off, we have to go through a nine-day battle, a seven to nine-day battle. Multiple challenge is that they repeatedly cave. And so the sensation never leaves. So sugar addiction is a seven to nine-day battle. And what I do is I, I, I walk people through very short ways to deal with the impetus when it comes. Because if you try to switch to a ketogenic diet or you try to lower your glycemic profile, your brain is going to say, nope, I want the sugar and I want it now. It will literally, if you're on a conference call, stand you up and walk you to the refrigerator. Unconsciously, you'll open the refrigerator and start digging through for something sweet to eat. It is a very powerful signaling system. And so what we do is we 
we battle it day by day. One of my favorite things to do when I get a sugar craving is just drink water. That puts it off for another 13, 18 minutes, right? And then you can, and then you can touch it again there. And if you drink another glass of water, you'll find that the sensation usually goes, goes away. And so the signal is strongest at night because as our mind quiets, I mean, as our environment quiets, our mind wakes up. So most people have a burning desire to eat sweets in the evening, which is the worst time to eat sweets. And so I really encourage them to drink uh, water in the evenings. And then also you can keep things that taste sweet around. You know, one of my favorites is uh, a cereal, believe it or not, called Magic Spoon. It actually shouldn't even be called a cereal because it's not, it doesn't have um, folic acid. Um, it has no grains. Um, it's made with monk fruit. Um, it will remind you of Lucky Charms you had when you were a seven-year-old kid. I mean, it's, um, it's delicious, tastes sweet. Yeah, it's called Magic Spoon. It has less than two grams of net carbs. It has zero sugar. A box of this cereal has the same amount of protein as a dozen eggs. Um, I also like to keep stevia and organic Thai coconut milk around. I mean, if you ever want to have something that's as close to the taste of ice cream as you've ever had in your life, take organic Thai coconut milk, put it in the refrigerator, take a couple tablespoons of that and put it in a bowl, put in a fistful of pistachios and a couple sliced strawberries and one pack of stevia. I'm telling you, it's like a pint of Pen and Jerry's ice cream and it has less than four grams of carbohydrate and it will satisfy the, what's that? Did I lose you? With the magic spoon and with the ice Magic spoon. Yeah. And then Thai, co thai coconut milk, organic Thai coconut milk, one pack of stevia, little fistful of pistachios and, and a couple sliced strawberries. I have a really Man, I am telling you. I have a really important yeah. ask though. Yes. Is it possible to have too much of these things? Yes. Yes, these are treats just like sweets should be a treat. They're just occasional, once in a while. Yes, I mean, you know, that's, we have a tendency to go overboard on everything, right? So you hear that, you know, cancer can't live, just start hammering alkaline water. And you, if you, you pause, organic Thai coconut milk. Right. Yes, organic Thai coconut milk. Sorry, this, I don't know why the mute keeps going on, but um, what was the last thing you heard me say? Basically, you know, it, it's a treat just like another treat. Yes. It's a treat, just like another treat. I mean, we don't, we, we, we shouldn't go overboard on these things either. Um, but, you know, it's, it's nice to have something that's a little sweet around that is not going to raise your insulin, right? Because remember, when insulin rises, most people think that the primary role of insulin is to lower blood sugar. It's not true. The primary role of insulin is to block any other form of energy utilization in the body. So if insulin is high, you cannot burn fat. Period. There's no exception to that rule. That's a biophysiologic law. So if insulin rises, your body cannot access the fatty acid pathway, which means you cannot burn fat. So you cannot burn fat in a high insulin environment, period. Right. I mean, and this is why, you know, I have patients for some reason, the majority of them are female and they'll come in my office and they'll go, Gary, I don't get it. I wake up in the morning. I drink a cup of black coffee. I go to Orange Theory. I go hammer down for 55 minutes. And then I do that five days a week. I've been doing that for three months and I haven't lost a single pound. How is that even possible? I'm not even eating. I go, well, you're not eating, but, but he is, right? It's just eating you because uh, lean muscle is a very efficient fuel source. And if your body doesn't have amino acids in the bloodstream and you exercise intensely, your body doesn't go to fatty acid metabolism. That's extraordinarily inefficient. It takes five to six hours to turn fat into energy. It takes three minutes to turn lean muscle into energy. So if you're one of those people 
that fast and then goes to the gym and exercises intensely and you've been doing that for a long period of time and you're not losing weight it's because you're burning your own lean muscle during exercise and then you're building your lean muscle back at night right so you you burn it during the day and you build it back at night and you burn it during the day and you build it back at night and guess what you don't touch you don't touch fat right because fat equals survival and we have to remember our bodies are primal it doesn't care what we look like, doesn't care what our skin or hair and nails look like, doesn't care about our body morphic image. It cares about survival. Fat equals survival. So we don't touch fat until it's a last resource, a last effort. So and we put proteins into the blood prior to exercise. And nothing will strip fat off your body faster than 30, 30, 30, right? 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking, followed by 30 minutes of steady state cardiovascular exercise. Um, or, or weight-bearing exercise would be my preference. Sorry, I feel like that was a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> that was great, Jerry. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. That was amazing. Super welcome, guys. Hey, I look forward to being on here again. I love it. We'll definitely text you about that later. Um, and awesome. awesome. You guys, we hope that you have an amazing weekend ahead. I mean, this was just so invaluable. This is crazy. The stores are now about to run out of Thai coconut milk, MCT oil, mag. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you well, guys, I really appreciate what you're doing too. And, and thank you so much for having me on. And, um, you know, I'll certainly handle any of your clients, um, you know, myself and look forward to working with you guys. All right. Likewise. Take care, everybody. Happy Friday. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Espresso with Erin and Suri. On your way out, be sure to check out our website, erinandsuri.com to keep up to date with what we have going on and maybe grab some free stuff. And if you feel so inclined, hop on over to leave us a five-star review. Wink, wink. And remember, life is more fun when you subscribe to Erin and Sarit.